Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, Nancy Dixon, who is the executive editor of a, a beautiful new book we're going to talk about, but she also is the head of the English program at Dillard, among many other things, and Lawrence Powell, who is on the editorial board and a contributor to the book, and he is a professor emeritus from Tulane, among many other things. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to see you both, and we <clears throat> interviewed both of you, you know, each of you, um, for your own books. Nancy, uh, your latest book that we interviewed you was this wonderful collection, 200 Years of New Orleans Lit. It was mm-hmm. so much fun. Thank you. I had a good time, too. And um, I assume it's being used now as probably some kind of textbook. And it's being used in uh, it's been used in every college in Louisiana, and um, as far away as Indiana, New York, Maine, the Carolinas. Oh, it's just wonderful! I remember there were so many people that I didn't realize their Louisiana roots. And you've won several awards and so on. And Lawrence, your latest book that you were here for was The Accidental City. Yeah, I'm trying to work on The uh, Son of the Accidental City, the <laughs> sequel. <laughs> what, what, do you have a working title? Uh, sort of, I do. Uh, New Orleans Unleashed. Uh, oh, great. About the, the two revolutions that made this city. Uh brought it almost to the center of the universe, uh, and then we kind of fell back. Well, Mostly I always dust- thought emeritus meant retired, but it, it doesn't uh, sound like it, you're... Uh, it means emeritus, but I, I, I don't know. I'm too obsessive-compulsive. and I mean, the great thing about being a tenured professor, or having been a tenured professor, especially of history, is that you can continue to do the things you like to do, what drew you into this profession in the first place, and that's research and write. And, um, so that's pretty much what I'm doing when I'm not doing a lot of extracurricular activities, which I tend to overcommit to. Well, we're glad you overcommitted to this book <laughs> mm-hmm. because it, we, we'd love it. By the way, you're both PhDs, but, you know, I hope you don't mind. We, we don't call people doctor. That's um, fine. No. <laughs> Nancy works. Larry works for me, too. Okay, thanks. Well, this book is just beautiful. Of course, it's radio. People can't see it. I guess you could call it a coffee table kind of book as far as the size and the incredible pictures. But there's there there. This is not just a book to look at the pictures. You've gathered incredible um, people together. Uh, Whose idea was this? Nancy, I guess you're the executive editor, so we'll... The uh, the idea was um, I'll have to credit Brian Boyles with a with the idea the executive publisher of the book L E H who, who works at Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, and um, he had the vision for this book um, early on, and when he got the um, you know when he won the uh, bid for the book and and started putting it together, then he got together I think some of the finest writers in the city, if not the finest writers in the city. <laughs> present company included. Absolutely. Because you both have, besides, you know, serving, uh, putting the book together, you also have contributed several, um, I guess we call them essays, to, to the collection. And and how did, how did you've organized it. You've broken it up into these um, seven different sections. It, 
how, what are some of, what what was some of your thinking on doing that? Well, the um, as you'll see, the the first pieces are by um, Rich and Rich Campanella and Larry Powell, and um, they look at the place where New Orleans um, was before New Orleans was founded. Um, so we open the book with that, um, and then we. We actually are at our first editorial meeting. We tried to separate it into different sections and what would go where, and um, and really by the end of the meeting, it was pretty much a consensus that it would flow a little more organically after the pieces were written. And then we came upon the sec, uh, came up with the sections. The so you have sections. people, um, place, conflict, and freedom, and so on. Well, since Lauren, since you wrote um, one of the first pieces. Um, describe to us, remind us what you mean when you say this was an accidental city. Well, first off, let me let me also give a big shout out, a huge shout out to Nancy and I guess Ann Glaviano and Rami and mm -hmm. Brian and the rest because quite frankly, I was a little bit skeptical we could have pulled this off, especially a book of this production these production qualities in the turnaround time that they achieved. Uh, it really it is kind of remarkable. Months? And not It was less than 18 months. Wow. Uh, and, you know, in a city which uh, uh, tends to, you know, roll with the, <laughs> with the flow. <laughs> and there are occasional, as we're know, taping this, you and, know, and we, we know there's on, occasional interruptions yeah, and things. And we're always constantly on New Orleans time. I mean, I, I was really kind of gobsmacked by it. But to answer your question, um, you know, there was a, a big debate when the uh, decision was made to move Louisiana, which at that time was centered over on Mobile, uh, to the Mississippi River. And it's where to put the port, where to put the new headquarters, of name for the, the, reg the regent, uh, the Duke of Orleans. And as I dipped into it, I was surprised to find that there was a real strong effort to place it up near Baton Rouge at a place called Bayamanchek or at Natchez or to leave it over on the Gulf. And Bienville, uniquely uh, among all the, the players in this, uh, was determined to put it here. Now, he, he had good reasons. I mean, this was had a back door to the uh, to the Gulf. Um, it was about the closest place you could get to the mouth. And, and you want to, you want to control a river, especially an artery of commerce, like the Mississippi, you have to be close to the river. That's river's mouth. Excuse me. Uh, that's the strategic narrows of commerce. But he also had a personal interest. He had gave himself a lot of the land and, you know, it's, there's a bit of a land jobbing scheme mm -hmm. involved in it. We, we never get that, you know, in our usually in our school textbooks. <laughs> well, <laughs> Here's Bienville. By well, the way, he I mean, owned I, some property. Yes, but I think this is just humanizes him. I mean, this, oh, is, this is how, uh, I mean, George Washington was a big land speculator and, and James Monroe and, and you know, and a lot of the, 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 the huge names in history, including Talleyrand, who stride across the pages of history were big land speculators in the United States. I mean, it was this was a place where there was so much land available. Well, you uh, and um, Richard Campanella, as Nancy said, wrote these um, introductory pieces before you know setting the stage, 
this is not some dry history thing when, you know, when is the War of 1812 or something? And it's not, as you pointed out, really chronological in so much as the development of the city over the past 300 years in all different kinds of areas. <clears throat> I was, you know, I'm a tour guide now. And so Me too. <laughs> I was um, very interested when I was reading this and I said, well, there's, you have 40 different essays here. You know, in the back of my mind, I thought, <clears throat> oh, I probably know everything. And maybe some of these topics you could leave out. And <laughs> I have to be honest, I couldn't think of anything that you could have left out. And I kept thinking, well, of course they had to include this. I mean, you have um, the Indians, the Wild West. You know, everybody knows about the Indians today and how they came from. The Irish, you did all these different ethnic groups. Um Richard Campanella, again, doing the architecture. Well, I mean, you could spend, you know, a career doing nothing but learning about the different architectural styles in New Orleans. Um, the Civil War, again, we're back to Lawrence again, I guess, because you you have quite some background in that, and you wrote the um, uh, uh, something about the Civil War uh, part of this book? Well, one reason I wanted to write about it, because it's such a huge, uh, huge flexion point in in the history of New Orleans, and actually in the history of America, mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think people realize there was a time when New Orleans was really the, the coming place, uh, when all that commerce was tumbling down from this great free trade zone, the Mississippi Valley. Yeah, we were one of the biggest ports in the country. Well, we still are, but we were also a great financial center, probably the second, third largest banking center. A lot of uh, international capital was flowing through here. Uh, we were the choke point for um, uh, cotton exports at a time when cotton was fueling the Industrial Revolution, the textile mills of Great Britain and Europe. Uh it was it was overrun with people. I mean, the commercial season here, the probably this population climbed by fifty percent. And so, uh, I, I think I wanted to put attention on that because it was such a formative period. And and another reason is it was when slavery became a part of our identity. We were a big slave mart, but uh, because of that, and because of the the, the uh, I, I don't want to use the word unique, but the distinctive racial makeup of the city where you had a prosperous and self-confident and self-conscious, politically self-conscious group of free people of color. Uh, you saw a revolutionary ferment here that really channeled through these folks from by way of of France and the islands, you know, that whole well, French... Well, I, I think we are unique. I, I think it is okay to, yeah. <laughs> to describe us that way. I forgot the source, but somebody sent me something recently where he divided the country into 11 areas, and one whole area is just New Orleans. I think he called it New France, you know, and he says it, it's a distinct region in and of Number itself. Number one tourist destination of 2018. Well, we it, hope. It, but, that's but, what it said. That's what 
somebody, yeah. Condé yes. Nast or someone just right. named us that. But, you know, I go beyond, you know, we were a great enjoyment culture, and that's why people. Yeah. Uh, and it's a culture that developed from an alternative European cultural base that the Americans were the immigrants as well as, you know, the Irish and the German and, and everyone else who came here. It was uh, advertised as such by Vaudrill as the, you know, come to New Orleans, you don't have to work. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> the Big Easy is what I argue on my tours that maybe yeah. that's what, from whence the, um, the term stems, one well, that New Orleanians have, seldom use. We have all those ethnic groups, and and you you really cover them all, Irish and Germans and so on. And one thing I was really interested in, Nancy, that you took it on yourself to um, write a little thing about... Um, and I know, Lawrence, you also have expertise in this area about Jewish people in New Orleans because we don't see that very much because there aren't, uh, population-wise, it's not a huge sector of the population, but but Jewish people have been part of our culture from the very beginning. Of our culture, of our education system, of our commerce system, of Canal Street, um, there, uh, you know, the Newman... Well, um, since yeah. since we, since we became a uh, uh, since the Louisiana Purchase, because mm-hmm. under the Code Noir, weren't right. Jews weren't everybody. That's something I never realized that everybody was supposed to be Catholic, even if you were a slave, you were supposed to be a Catholic. But there were still Jewish merchants like mm-hmm. Juan Santos who came through here, and mm-hmm. but this was always <clears throat> a place that was pretty uh, pretty easy approach to the laws. <laughs> Well, and Nancy, you, you you know, some of the names, Toro, uh, Newman, Delgado, mm-hmm. names like that, that mm-hmm. are part of our God, everyday God life. Yeah. God, God show. show. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think... God show. Yeah, people... Uh, God show. Yeah, he was the... Uh, he was a clothing... Uh, king, had a clothing empire and a sugar empire. And pulled them both off. Kind of an amazing guy. Well, of course, you include... Um, Cities of the Dead. We've we've interviewed um, Sally Asher, mm-hmm. and I know she's writing yet more books. And um, as I said, Voodoo, Yellow Fever. I mean, it, it, you 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 didn't just. I don't know the proper term. You didn't just. This is not a PR, fluffy, book. You you show us warts and all. Mm-hmm. You know. Slavery is certainly not something that we're proud of when we were such a big slave market and so on. There's probably as much to be ashamed of as there is to be proud of in this book. Um, but, we, you know, what we wanted it to be was an honest look at the city and, um, and a, you know, a tribute to, um, you know, those who built this city and, and, and those who remain here. I mean, this book can be used um, in classes and it can be used for humanities of all sorts not just history well and it's as i said it's delightful um the quality as you point out lawrence of the uh, production the pictures you know you just the sources that you went to i love you have a zulu picture that i guess it takes up two it's pages. a showstopper it? yeah it really mm-hmm. is i mean we've seen lots of pictures but and, and eric waters and it's so clear the um the old the old pictures that you know deal with the nineteenth century or whatever, and they really you know it, it helps a layman like me to to appreciate the facts of of what you're describing it It makes it so interesting 
another one that you took on yourself because you you know you have expertise in so many areas, Nancy. But since it's um, coming up as we're taping this um, to Carnival time, and you talk about women in Carnival again, a lot of people don't realize how much that's changed over the years. Mm. So women have some of the premier crews. <coughs> I mean, today people are fighting to get in muses and nicks. The waiting lists are uh, years long. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I used to live on the parade route on Napoleon Avenue, so I saw 15 parades come by my house. But um, now I pick and choose my parade, my uptown parades. I'm coming to two nicks and muses. <laughs> um, I rode in muses too. It was quite, it, it, um, those, those women have some energy. Um, I did it one year, and the next year I thought I was going to do it again, but uh, it really takes some time and dedication. But they have put uh, both of them came on the scene since Katrina, and they've put a um, they put women's carnival parades on the map. Um, that's for sure. It really has changed. The old guard um, of carnival is um, certainly taking notice. Well, especially because the 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 older. Uh, women's groups, Iris, and there was Venus, Venus. at one time. Which few know about Venus. Weren't they daytime parades? Mm-hmm. And whereas, Iris still is. Yeah, and, and Venus whereas now the new ones uh, have a lot of young people and they're nighttime parades and they have the lights and everything just like <laughs> the, the other parades. So that's really, really a different change. Um, you write about um, some of the other topics. Uh, let's see. I mean, we could talk about any of them. The, the drinks, you talk about Cocktails. the food. Wettest place on earth. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and you weren't referring to the weather. <laughs> no, that too, but no, we weren't referring to the weather. Um, jazz Fest and how Jazz Fest has grown. People today that live here or weren't around for the beginnings of Jazz Fest or tourists today that come. They have no idea what it was like, what, in 1970 it started? When you could bring your own ice chest and blanket and even a tent. And I remember those days. I did too. 1974 was my first Jazz Fest, but that's when it moved out to, um, out to the uh, fairgrounds. And no one had any idea it would turn into... This international... Well, it, it just looked like a folk fest, like yeah. the National Folk Festival, you know, kind of a laid-back affair. Now it's that along with Mardi Gras' signature um, tourist well, attractions. It's been a, you know, there's a, it's been corporatized. Yep. <laughs> Everything's branded. Well, that's one thing about Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras has not been corporatized. Yes. How is it that, <laughs> that we're not seeing the, I mean, everything has a name, the Super Bowl... You know, every, every the Superdome, everything. Jazz has, Fest by Shell. Yeah, Jazz Fest by Shell. How does how is it that Mardi Gras has remained really pretty it, much non-commercial? Uh, I just think it's you know uh, cantankerously decentralized and spontaneous, and it's it really is true to the spirit of original spirit of Carnival that it's it's a uh, something that percolates up from the streets. Uh, what's interesting about American Carnival is you can see the Americanization of it. You can see that the Americans tried to organize it <laughs> and come and impose this kind of top-down 
control over it, but it, it, it defied and resisted that and still does. I mean, it's, I mean, New Orleans is a place people come to to release themselves, to put on a mask so they can take off a mask, you know, and, and that's, and that's the spirit of carnival. And it's also put on by the wealthy. I mean, a lot of these crews are, you know, they, they, uh, well, well, they can afford to um, not be corporatized. They can afford to put on the show themselves. Or are there, are there even these uh, these truck floats? I mean, that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's that, true. I mean, that I think that kind of exemplifies. Well, there's it. all mm-hmm. kinds of quirky little <laughs> parades. My parade is my crew is the smallest. T Rex. Um, and marching crews mm-hmm. and just people getting together. Or the lazy boy. Like the lazy <laughs> I just boy. saw a lazy boy going down the street yesterday to somebody's house, you know. I thought, you know, where I mean, else but New Orleans would there be a bunch of guys city, riding around in case city, you... A city of great whimsy, I mean. You can't, you can't, and anybody can, can yeah. organize anybody can anything. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of fun. You... You do point out, though, as I said, that it's not all fun and games. We had some terrible times with yellow fever. I mean, a huge percentage of people dying before we figured out what was that it was this mosquito. And I didn't realize it. I think I just read in this thing that there was some there were seventy five thousand cisterns that, you know, all had to be covered up when they did find out in nineteen oh five. And, of course, we have uh, weather problems, and we had this, what I call, the late unpleasantness mm-hmm. <laughs> in 2005, because I was just so tired of talking about Katrina. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought you were talking about the Civil political War. climate in Washington, <laughs> the late unpleasantness. I guess you were talking about the Civil War. That's well, I originally... To <laughs> I, I, I wrote a, a, something, you know, I'm a journalist, and I wrote... Essay about New Orleans, and I called the the late unpleasantness, and the publisher called me up and said, "What What are you talking about?" And I said, "Well, I could have put the War of Northern Aggression," <laughs> and I think we compromised and called it the War Between the States. But we did. I mean, Katrina was extremely unpleasant, and and just changed everything. And so many people never came back, and we're still as we speak, having, you know, tremendous infrastructure problems with our, particularly with our, our our plumbing and our water supply and things like that. And you don't duck out on the fact that this is not Eden. It's just this fascinating um, place. And you, you had somebody write about the saints and what it meant to New Orleans. Brian Boyles. Yes. Who and, wrote The Boom and Blackout. And so, you know, he was a perfect person the to write. blackout when we, <laughs> well, um, but, but let's talk about the happy time of that the Saints won a Super Bowl and what that meant for the city. That's what he wrote about. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, uh, it was a, it was a beautiful time um, post-Katrina, <clears throat> pardon me, and he really did, um, you know, write about the way it brought the city together. And that we all had something to cheer for. And I, I remember, you know, pumping gas in my car and, you know, talking it. And everybody, we're all talking about the Saints. Everybody's wearing Saints gear. Everybody could wear Saints gear to work. I mean, you know, it was, um, I, it, it was a fun time. It, it did help this city. It truly oh, it did help bring everything. the city back. It sure did. 
We, um, I worked at Loyola for a long time, and we had our graduation in the Superdome, and they introduced Mitch Landrieu, who had just been elected mayor, and he was a product of Loyola, and there was very polite applause, and then Drew Brees came out, and everybody was <laughs> screaming and hollering, and the faculty members were rushing up and, you know, getting his autograph, and, and I said, oh, well, we, we have a mayor, but, you know, we had the Super Bowl. Well, because people that have been here a long time remember the Aints and how, mm-hmm. how for such a long time the Saints... Um, and you saw it, I think, a couple of weeks ago sure. from when we're taping this, when the Saints had a chance to to be in, you know, to be on the top, and everybody the next day was. I think you know, still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're living off two two weeks ago. But it the, comes the Super Bowl comes during Mardi Gras, so now we don't have to pay so much attention. <laughs> well, at the end, you. Um, I thought it was kind of appropriate. Didn't you have something where um, you talk about renewal and resilience? And you you had Mayor Landrieu mm-hmm. say something about that's the one. It was such a nice theme to to put at the end. Um, wh- what would you if you had to sum up this book? Since you're the executive editor, how would you how would you want it to be, to be described? I would I would like it to be described as an honest uh, look at the last 300 years of the city, um, as well as you know the the promise that the that the future holds for the city. And um, I'd like people, like you said earlier, warts and all. We're not trying to hide anything. Um, we're not um, you know the the city's beautiful. Um, the city's also, as Larry points out, you know, drawn out of the mud. You know and um, and we've had pro- and we have and will continue to have those problems um, forever because of people wanting to come here for the reasons they want to come here. We also have the infrastructure problems that they don't have in other cities. We have priorities that not everybody has. But um, I mean, I think the book was a labor of love, and I think that um, anyone that that uh, that knows New Orleans or wants to know more about New Orleans can find a pretty honest picture in this book. Susan Larson wrote um, about your book and described it. She said, this book gives a fine cross-section of our population and our history right up to the present moment. It is bright and witty and thoughtful, focusing on the way New Orleans has presented itself to the world in all its diversity and distinctiveness. So I thought that was a good description. I think it's just to make uh, one... Uh, one comment is that it is an honest reckoning with the past, and I think it does underscore the resilience of this city. Well, thank you, and thank you all for writing it. We want to thank our guests today, Nancy Dixon and Lawrence Powell, author most recently of New Orleans and the World, 1718 to 2018, Tricentennial Anthology. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH. <laughs>